0: A number of months ago, Carrie and I were with some friends and we were eating uh, dinner at a place where you, they serve dinner and there's a lovely garden. And So I asked them, they had already been out and toured the area, and I said, well, how was it? And they said, well, if you want to tour a bunch of weeds, go ahead and go. And the reality is, it is it's always sad to see a place that at one point was just gloriously beautiful kind of succumb to neglect, maybe the budget's down. And it seems like flowers have left to themselves, seem to die. Weeds have left to themselves flourish. And that's what happened. It's very similar at times. Um, I've had various people, even in my own family, farms or just individual property, where the, the once caretaker of this property was just they had a, such a huge investment in its beauty. And when you go back, sometimes I've gone back with certain family members and we look at a place that they once worked and cared for and, and manicured and they look at it and you can just see the pain on their face as they are looking at a place that once was beautiful and now it's just unkept. That beauty gone to waste is a real tragedy. Maybe you've witnessed what I have at times where you come to a certain place, you're told about it, and maybe it's a place you've gone for months and years, and it's a place you took your kids, and you go back and you realize that there's been some other people there that don't care for it the way you do. And when you come into this lake and you see all the garbage and you see beer cans left out and pop cans and everything else, and you you just kind of look at it, and your heart is not taken by the beauty of the place, but by the tragedy of the fact that some people just think that the world is their garbage dump. I don't have very many pet peeves in my life at all. I really don't. I you know things don't shake me too much. I got a couple. I'll just let you know. One is if you cut my cheese at my house wrong, I'll kick you out. Um, it's just an issue. I don't know where that OCD came from. I have no idea, but it's, it's pretty critical. So, um, if you, if you like mangle the cheese, you keep your hands off of my cheese and my knives. I have another one. It's, um, this one is pretty hot too uh graffiti and litter those two drive me crazy they do and and in fact uh, my family's got a legendary story of a moment that i had all the family with me we were driving along and somebody in front of me was throwing their mcdonald's garbage out the window i could just feel the rage of god flooding up in my soul (laughs) I've never done it before, nor since, but I pulled a citizen's arrest. I don't even know if it's illegal. They thought it was. I whipped them over, pulled my car in front of them, jumped out and pulled a citizen's arrest right there. I did. Those kids, man, their eyes were like this. And the only one thing bigger were my kids who were like, dad's gonna kill these people over McDonald's garbage. Drives me crazy. Does. Man, you throw trash in. I catch you doing that. Woo. I'll slice you up with my cheese. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And and here's the reason. I'm not trying to play, uh, you know, Trump one on the the spiritual calendar. But when a person um, takes something that is beautiful and just discredits it and discards junk on it. It's my thought. It's like, who, who do you think you are? It's just this is something of beauty. Uh, maybe you felt the same way I did when the Exxon Valdez, and I'm not trying to take a shot at oil companies. It's just it's just the reality of what we all witnessed, and when oil gets spilled, and all these birds were dying, and the sea lines and everything else, and you just realize it's like, wow, life is pretty fragile and can be beautiful, and if not kept well can be destroyed with garbage. I tell you those stories for a purpose. We're not talking about garbage today. I wanted you to feel in your heart what I think Paul is feeling when he writes this letter chloe and her friends they were coming to paul and they were going to talk to paul and they said hey paul we want to come talk to you about the church and he was excited it's like the church the one i planned in corinth i led you guys to christ and he was all excited and they were going to come and then all of a sudden he they started talking about not the beauty of the church but the beer cans and the garbage and the plastic and the and the toilet paper that was thrown out not not taken care of and they just one thing after another And when Paul's writing back to this church, this is what he says. Brothers, I I cannot address you as spiritual, but rather as worldly. Sadly, you're just mere infants in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food. You're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready for it. You're still worldly. And I know that. I know you haven't grown up. Why? Because... There's jealousy that seems to mark your church. There's quarreling among you. And are you not worldly? Are you not acting just like everyone else out in the street does? When people look at this text, they tend to focus on the divisiveness. And that's not really where the focus should be. Paul brings up division only as a symptom. Division in the church is only a symptom. It's like the red light on the dashboard of your car. No one brings up and says, We got a problem with our red light. No, you got a problem in your car. And Paul's point is this is folks, the reason why you're struggling with lining up behind Apollos and lining up behind Paul is not because you love them, it's because you're immature. And here's the warning. If you're not careful, you're going to bring this whole church down on you. Because that's what can happen. That's where he finishes. No more boasting about people. Whether you're Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. Why? Because there's going to come a day that God will test this thing. And he will look at the durability of what you've been building. And only that which is built with the wisdom of God endures. So, his question is this, and it's ours that we raised this morning How do we continue to make sure that we are the kind of body that is building in maturity that produces growth and beauty and stability versus tearing the place down? onto our heads because we build with the material of the streets. Paul starts off and he uses three metaphors and these are going to be the hooks that we will use this morning. He talks about the child, he talks about the body, and then he talks about the garden or the field, this place that the body should be growing and developing maturity. This garden, this field should develop and produce beauty. And then this temple or this building that should reflect strength and out of each of those metaphors he has a point and it's all about how do we make sure that we're building towards maturity that endures the test of time and his first point is this unlike in the physical realm in the spiritual realm maturity does not come naturally it only comes when you live with great intention now, the reality is, Paul is, is telling us that um, in the natural realm, people mature. They do it all the time. In fact, it rarely doesn't happen. When a child is born, they start to grow and we measure them. And man, we, we, you see, if you've had children lately, I mean, they are on that. It's like your child is in the 37th percentile in height and weight and, you know, brain size and, you know, neurofunction and everything else. I mean, they got the thing down and they measure that all along the way. And if ever your child kind of hits a plateau or declines, was in the 37th percentile, now it's in the 30th percentile, it's in the 30th, you're in seeing a doctor. Why? Because we we absolutely presume upon growth it happens you're going to get taller if you're a guy your voice is going to lower if you're you know uh, either sex male or female there's just going to be those telltale signs that you're growing up it happens can't stop it I mean you can eat Doritos every day and macaroni and cheese you're still going to grow up not true in the spiritual realm it's not true at all and so paul comes to a conclusion number one and that is is because it takes intention to grow in the spiritual realm not in the physical realm he says number one you, you cannot let your flesh lead the way you can't i give you milk not solid food why because you weren't ready but rather you're still worldly some people are saying, "Up, we line behind Paul." Some are rather, "Nope, we line up behind Apollos." And each of them, Paul is saying, "Is you're doing this because you're being driven by your flesh." There's something in that person you like. There's something that they stand for. There's something that they, that's their strength, whatever the case may be. But Paul is suggesting that you're lining up behind people, not behind God. And when you do that, you're moved not by God, but by the flesh. The indicator, there's going to be factions. There's going to be pride-filled loyalty. It's going to be kind of a fan club mentality. But what it produces is it produces a church not with power, but with popularity. I liken it unto kind of a swamp. If you go out to a swamp, you're going to have a lot of water. And yes, you're going to have life, but you're not going to have power. Nobody builds a power plant in a swamp. Why? Because it doesn't have any restriction. Doesn't have any direction, doesn't have any power, doesn't have any flow. And Paul says, because you're being driven by the flesh, you're being driven by the standards of the street, as he says, the mere human perspective your life has no power it it is being sidelined and all of the energy of the church instead of moving forward for the kingdom of god is being sidelined and taken out by what factions and jealousy and, and people talking behind each other's back and doing all kinds of things stealing away from the strength of the church we can't let our flesh lead the way If you do, you're going to produce, Paul says, what the street does. And therefore, you have to take ownership of your own intake. You don't get to blame anyone. It's nobody's fault but yours. Whether or not you mature, it's not going to be your teacher's fault. It's not going to be your parents' fault. It's not going to be anyone's fault, Paul says, except for yourself. And he comes to them and he says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Why? Not because of Paul's teaching, but because of them. There's a similar warning. If you flip over into Hebrews chapter six, there's a warning that passage, if you've ever read in that passage, is like one of those passages that we kind of stumble over. But if you look at the context, it really kind of settles the issue. It's that passage where they say you were once enlightened and if you fall away and all of that stuff. What's the context? Go back up and look at the very beginning. What's the context? It says this. You folks, the writer, is sounds kind of similar to Paul. It says, you're still continuing in basic things and it should not be this way. He even lists them there in Hebrews. Basic things like Christ and repentance, faith in God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and judgment. And the writer to the book of Hebrews is really saying the same thing as Paul. And that is, dear friends, you're talking like you're in kindergarten and you shouldn't be there. I mean, if I got a teacher and you're celebrating the child, say, see, spot, run. In kindergarten, yay, way to go. But if there's a teacher and that person is in high school in 12th grade and they can't get C spot run, we got a problem. That's what Paul is saying. You have to take ownership of your intake. You have to take ownership of what you're dealing with. In the book of Hebrews, the same thing is, folks, you can sit there and wallow around forever in basics, but here's the deal the direction of Christendom spiritually should match physically. There should be a growth pattern, and that is your responsibility. No one else's. Mom and dad, that's your responsibility. We'll partner with you as a church. But I guarantee you, as a mom and dad, I'm going to stand before God, held accountable for what I did with my kids. And you will too. Their maturation in the faith is yours. We'll partner with you. We'll serve you. We'll love you. We'll equip you as best we can. But Paul is saying you've got to take personal responsibility for maturation. Because it doesn't happen naturally in the spiritual realm like it does in the physical realm. couple of observations growth should be expected you should expect it of yourself you should not settle that you will be the same person in a year as you are today you should have higher expectations of yourself and therefore you're probably going to need a growth plan you're going to need to lay out and kind of make a determination why i love this quote of josh mcdowell if you always do what you've always done you'll always be what you've always been and that's true I like a good rut like anybody else. I do. I love ruts. I kind of like sequence. I like things to remain the same. But the fact is, sometimes you got to blow the end out of the rut or it turns into a coffin. And it becomes your death. And so you have to step back and say, what am I going to do? How do I need to own? Because Paul's statement is, I am still feeding you the same thing I fed you when I saw you trust Christ seven years ago. Shouldn't be that way. We should be on to other things. You have to take ownership. Secondly, moving to another metaphor, moving to the field, where it is a place of produce and a place of beauty. The capacity to appreciate and affirm each other's person. And unique contribution comes when what? When we remember a really critical principle, and that is when it comes to the issue of growth in the church, it's not about a person, it's about God. When it comes to the issue of beauty and growth in the church, Paul makes sure, and he says it twice, verse 5, he says, What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but here's the line, underline it. But God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes all things grow. One of the things that happens in the church is we start fighting over who's most important. It's really tragic over the last you know, number of years. I love the word essential until we just abuse the daylights out of it. Because we had certain businesses that were essential got to stay open and others that were not essential. I mean, that's like saying your left arm, not essential, your right arm is. Where do we get the basis for that kind of craziness? I want you to come with me just on a little journey and take a, we're going to listen in on a conversation. It's completely hypothetical conversation that could never occur and you'll understand when I tell you. I want you to come to the head of my garden. We're looking out over the dirt and I'm overhearing a conversation. It's a debate between soil and the seed and the water. And the soil comes up and says, hey, I tell you what, seed and water, you're nothing without me. The reality is if you don't have the good soil, you can't plant yourself and the water means nothing. So the reality is between the three of us, when it comes down to it, I really am most important. Well, then the seed speaks up and the seed says, hey, wait a minute. I mean, you can be pretty soil and you can be all nice and you can have all the right pH and everything can be perfect. But the fact is, if you don't have me to seed, nothing's going to grow. And you're going to look the same month after month after month because you have the capacity of what? Receiving life, but not having life in and of itself. Well, then the water comes along and says, guys, you can sit there and argue this all day. But if I'm not there, you both die. So in asking you the question, which one is most essential? Which one is superior? The seed, the water, the soil. You see the tragedy when we step back and listen to that silly conversation is we simply come to the conclusion that Paul does. You guys are crazy. You don't see the beauty of yourself in the symmetry and the the completeness of the three of you together. You don't get it that that, uh, apart from any of you, it doesn't work. You don't see the essential blessing of each part. And yet in the church... We have that same silly conversation. Oh, we, we, we aren't talking about seed. We aren't talking about water. We're not talking about uh, soil. We're talking about what, what, what makes the church grow. What's the most important? I think it was 1987. I was in Denver and came on. He was the president and he came into a class I was in and he said, well, gentlemen, ladies, I witnessed something this weekend that I never thought I would see. 1987, remember, and he said, I was just in a church this weekend where the worship pastor was getting six figures, more than the senior pastor. We're all kind of like six figures. I don't care who gets it. That's a lot of money. 1980, I mean, that would be a lot for a worship pastor today, to be quite honest with you, in this area. That would be tons of money. Um, you're saying, well, do we pay our worship pastor? The-? No, we don't. <laughs> rest rest your little poor heart that is palpitating at this moment. No, 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 it, it would be a ton of money. And, and he, then he makes, he goes, when did worship leaders become the absolute most critical element of the church? I'm not against worship leaders. I love them. But you see, in the church, we actually have that silly little conversation about seed and water and soil all the time. Because we're always trying to figure out who's most important. And, and people will say, oh, it's got to be worship. Man, if you don't have a good worship leader, your church is going to die. And then others. And if somebody comes along and says, ha, 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 if you don't have a good children's ministry, no young families are going to come to your church. They're all going to go somewhere else because if you don't have a good children's ministry, and by the way, it's the most strategic thing you can do in the church because the vast majority of people come to Christ before the age of 18. So if you want to see people come to Christ and if you want to change your city, you better have the best children's pastor in the world. and Well, we do for that very reason. But then the youth guys come along and say, whoa, dude, before you pay her what she's asking, you know, I'm making all of this up. And so (laughs) they come along and and they got stats on their side, to be honest with you, because they're going to say, hey, pastor, do you realize that if you take all of the 12 year olds in your church, by the time they're 18, 75% of them are going to be gone. And so if you don't have a good youth ministry, man, you're going to produce what? Nothing in terms of the next generation. Oh, we don't line up behind Apollo, so we don't line up behind Paul. What we line up is behind ministries or people. And what we're really trying to say is what's most important in the church? What causes the church to grow? Paul will tell us. It's right here. It's written twice. Let me reread it. God makes our church grow. And the capacity to appreciate and affirm each person's, each ministry's unique contribution comes only when what? We mature and understand God's the one that makes this place home. On one hand, I would say maturity learns to celebrate the essentialness of each person, but also maturity understands that anyone can be replaced. Starting with me, anyone can, and God can cause the church to grow. Each time that we teach the uh, Discovering First class, I, I really love this section where Pastor Jeff's talking about unique gifts, and it's, it's a high point for me every time. He'll often tell this story. It goes something like this. I won't do as good a job. If you're not a member, take the class, and you'll hear the beauty of his presentation. He'll say something like, uh, who's most important in this class? And we'll talk about the fact that he and I present and without us, there wouldn't be any material. But somewhere in his story, he'll say, but what about the person, Carrie, who puts everything together and signs everyone up and communicates to them and makes all of the documentation and puts all together, you know, all of the materials without her. Let me tell you what, all you got is two talking heads and you don't have any material. And to be quite honest with you, you don't have anyone that shows up. And then he goes to the next level. But you know, you know those chairs that you're you're all sitting in right now who put those out you see without the custodial team without the people who came maybe in the middle of the night or came in the morning and thought of you and prepared for this none of this would happen you'd be doing this class standing up or sitting on the floor and no one would want to do that and his point is this and it's a great one When you're a mature person, you will see not only what is up front, but you'll see behind the scenes. And you realize it takes everyone in this room to pull this church off to be a church for the city. There's no irreplaceable person, but every person is an essential part. Maturity sees that. The immature are always vying for who's important and who should be heralded and who is the most significant individual. Uh, That's what they're always wrestling with. And Paul says, what you need to do is you need to understand the supremacy of God. Ultimately, God is the only essential element. God is the only essential power for the church to grow. He says it twice because he wants us to get it. God makes it grow. Only God who makes things grow matters. And the mature person doesn't fight against that, but recognizes that and celebrates it because there's a freedom in that. It means that I am an essential part, but not the cause. It means that I get to play a role and you get to play a role. But the reality is God is still going to be the one that gets the glory because he's still the one that causes it to grow. Robert Morrison, who is a missionary in China, wrote the following words. He says, the great fault, I think, in our mission is that no one likes to be second. The world is yet to see what could happen if everyone lost the desire to get the glory. Wouldn't it be a marvelous place if nobody cared who got the credit? The reality is that sounds great on print, but how many of us, when an idea gets floated and it becomes successful, find a way to wiggle in our name as the one who had the original idea? How many of us, when there's a problem, there's a stalemate, there's a difficulty, and how many of us make sure that everyone knows, you know who had the solution to this one? It was me. We're all good with God getting the glory as long as you make sure that my name goes up on the marquee with God. We're okay with God growing the church as long as you recognize my part. Paul says that's a sign of immaturity. And if you continue to give into the flesh, you'll bring the house down right on top of you. He moves to the last metaphor, and that is to the building. We're God's fellow workers. You're God's field. You're God's building. And he makes this statement. He says, by God's grace, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And we built it upon the foundation of Christ then he goes and he evaluates he goes no one can lay any foundation other than Christ and if you use things such as gold, silver, costly stones wood, hay or straw when God tests it or when life tests it it's going to what? it's going to fail the test of fire it's going to fail the test of God and it won't be durable conclusion is this number one The material we use determines the stability of the church. Now, what is today's equivalent to gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw? Well, he says it's the wisdom of the world. What does the world use? They use marketability strategies. They use... A relevancy model. I remember when relevancy became the word in 1990. For those of you who weren't alive at the time, that was the word in church. And if you were doing church anywhere, we had conferences on relevant exposition. We had conferences on developing a relevant church. That got hijacked, by the way. It became relevancy and it moved into acceptance. How do we get accepted by the world? How do we become not so dynamic that they hate us? And the passion of the church across the U.S., Everyone was doing it. So we have to find a way to be relevant. I mean, after all, if teenagers don't find us relevant, then their their sinful life and ultimate damnation in hell is going to be our responsibility. So we tried all kinds of things. We've been trying them for 30 years. And Paul says that can turn yourself into... A stubble field that just gets ignited by fire. What is it that he says? Well, you have to build with the wisdom of God. You have to be unapologetically committed to the wisdom of God. It's not easy. People will tug you all the time. Pastor, we've got to be about this. Pastor, we've got to stand up for this. We've got to do this. And the reality is, most of the time, every time somebody gets passionate about that, it's about something of relevancy or something to make us acceptable to the street. If you take a tour around our church, not perfectly. We're not. We've got a long way to go. But I can pretty much assure you that every Bible study you go to, this is what we will be studying. Every sermon that you will ever hear comes from here. And we do that not because we're trendy, simply because when I stand before God, I do not want the work of my life to get torched right in front of me, nor do you. And when we leave this church and I leave, I don't want to look back on the church and think, wow, what I left was a fragile, vulnerable group of people that don't know how to turn to the authority of God's word for life and direction. But I think another thing, if you look around our church and you go around, you start maybe on Monday night, you're going to go to a group of people over here praying. Tuesday, you come to staff meeting about 9.30, and you're going to see the staff praying. And you, you show up here on a Thursday morning, you're going to see a group of people praying. And if you show up here on a Thursday about 9 o'clock in the morning, you see a group of people praying. If you come here on a Sunday morning about 8.20, you're going to see a group of people praying. And by the way, during this service, right while you're sitting in here, there's another group of people that are praying. And they're going to spend the entire service praying for you. They do that every Weak. Why? Because they're bored and don't have anything else to do? No. Because the material that we use determines the stability of the church. I wonder, maybe I believe that maybe the real cause of a 50% reduction in church attendance in the United States in the last three years is because we don't have strength. And all it took was a little virus and a few nasty things like mass. And we split the church right in half. My friends, that's not a virus problem. That's a maturity problem. And we need to own that, because if we sow worthless work into others' lives, we destroy the fabric of the church. Don't you know you're God's temple, and God's Spirit lives in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, I think this is the maybe the harshest warning in the Bible. I think it's one of the harshest warnings in the Bible. You destroy God's temple, and God says, "I'll destroy you." If I sow worthless things into the church, I'm going to bring the church down. What are they? They're the things of the flesh. They're the things of competition. They're the things of fractionalization. They're the things of jealousy. They're the things of arguing over things of the world. Instead of getting behind God, lining up behind God, squaring up behind God, and seeing every person in this room as an essential person, not to be vetted, but to be loved, not to be in competition with, but to partner with. And when I see people that way, Paul is suggesting, the scripture is suggesting, that I'm maturing, I'm growing. Because fractionalization is only the result of what? Immaturity. And fractionalization causes me to build with market strategies from the street. Not from scripture, not with prayer. That are the wisdom and the the work and the tools of God. Peter Pan, <laughs> I'm not much of a fan other than the fact it's a fairly good representation of the world. Peter Pan was known for his inability or his passion to never grow up. There's actually a disease. It's a classification of one of the uh, DMS Uh, Classifications—it's it's it's an inability or a a choice of a person that they don't want to grow up. Two psychiatrists were writing about a fourteen-year-old boy that they were working with. And he didn't want to accept the responsibility of growing up. And so he did a number of things. Number one is he would not eat much and he stayed away from all nutritional things. Because he knew if I eat nutritional food, my body is wired by God to grow. And he didn't want to. When he started to get taller, he started to walk with a stoop. His parents didn't know why he was doing it. They thought it was driven by some form of scoliosis. It wasn't. It was driven by a passion to avoid getting taller. Because if you get taller, people expect things of you because you're maturing. When his, when his voice started to crack a little bit, you know how they do in young guys, and it started to lower a little bit, he pitched himself up in terms of his voice. He altered his voice because he wanted to continue to convince people that he was... Was young. He hated the idea of growing up. And so he purposely tried to do things to mask it. Paul's suggestion is that may be more common sometimes in the church. We're made to mature, to reflect beauty and strength. The nature of the material that we use determines our outcome. But the fact is, is some people, they just don't want to. They Alter the pitch of their throat. They stoop when they walk. They do all kinds of things to avoid what? Having the mind of Christ and thinking like God. But here's the warning the warning is simply this when you remain immature, you run the risk of fractionalizing the church. You run the risk of living with your own form of jealousy. You run the risk of bringing the market trends off of the street into the church. And what will happen, Paul says, is you'll bring the house down right on top of you. In the United States this year, we're going to close between eight and 10,000 churches. We're going to seal them up. They're going to sell the property. They're going to become museums or the building's going to be leveled. We've been doing that for 20 years straight. Why? Because there's a group of people who refuse to grow up. But that's God's vision for us. It is. So today you get the opportunity to own this and to say, you know, God, this is my calling. This is what you expect. And so, Lord, I'm going to chart a course to strengthen my body, to add beauty to this church. And stability and integrity of this church. Because then, any fire of tests that comes, we will endure. But the warning is there. You stay in jealousy and immaturity, and you can bring the house down.